Welcome to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. This is where we take a chapter-by-chapter approach to the scriptures that are assigned by the Come Follow Me curriculum of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. My name is Barry Hillam, and I hope that this podcast will be a benefit to you. In each episode, you will hear a short flyover summary for the scriptural chapter in question, followed by a verse-by-verse reading that is supplemented with commentary from parallel passages of scripture and from modern-day prophets. You might consider adjusting the playback speed in your favorite podcast player. With that, I'm glad you're with me. Let's get started. Alma, chapter 27. Well, this is the final chapter of the story of the sons of Mosiah. It's here that their incredible missionary journey comes to a close. And of course, where we find Ammon, Aaron, Omner, and Himni, and their brethren returning back to the land of Zarahemla after their 14 years of service. It's in this chapter that the narrative flashback that began in Alma chapter 17 is complete, where we are provided with a retelling of the very surprising meeting on the road to Zarahemla between Alma the Younger and these four sons of Mosiah and their companions. When we read of this meeting in Alma chapter 17, we did so from the perspective of Alma. His mission was ongoing, and that's what we had been reading of, and he was done ministering to the people in Gideon and traveling south to the land of Manti, and that's when he encountered the sons of Mosiah. Now, here in Alma chapter 27, ten chapters later, we as readers are figuratively traveling the same road, but this time with the sons of Mosiah, and we're approaching from the south. It is at this point in this chapter then, after these 14 years have passed, that we encounter Alma. So we'll have the pleasure of reading that in Alma chapter 27. And again, that will bring this 14-year flashback to a completion. Then we can expect the timeline to move forward from this point as we continue through the entire book of Alma. And the focus of the book once more will be on Alma, specifically in his ministry. We will discover in this chapter that the sons of Mosiah and their missionary companions are not the only people to return to the city of Zarahemla or to come to the city of Zarahemla. Instead, they have a very large and anxious group of people in tow. This, of course, is the converted Lamanites or the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or as they will come to be called in this chapter by the Nephites, the people of Ammon. We know from our previous readings that these people were scattered throughout the Lamanite kingdom. They were in the many cities that were listed in Alma chapter 23. However, as time went on and their persecution became more intense, we get the impression that they were concentrated in the land of Ishmael and still in the land of Nephi. These anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or the people of Ammon, strictly speaking, are not with Ammon and the sons of Mosiah and their companions, when they encounter Alma on the road to the land of Zarahemla, or I should say the city of Zarahemla, since at this point they're already within the land, and that's why the people of Ammon are not with them. As we'll read in this chapter in verse 14, the people of Ammon are gathered near the border of Zarahemla, while the sons of Mosiah travel into the capital city without them, an appeal to the chief judge, which of course was Nephiha, who then, as we read in this chapter, will appeal to the people, and they will decide uh, what to do with these wonderful new converts, the people of Ammon. So we'll read of all of that in this chapter, and we'll discover that this chapter is also really the story of a converted group of people within the land of Zarahemla, of converted Nephites, owing largely, by the way, to the missionary efforts of Alma the Younger, who are willing to offer up an entire land to these people of Ammon, and it will be called Jershon. This won't be our last opportunity to read about these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, or the people of Ammon, especially since their posterity, which we will come to know as the stripling warriors or the sons of Helaman, will figure prominently into the book of Alma. 
Which shows us, by the way, an interesting contrast to Mosiah chapter 26. Uh, as this people transition into their next generation, it's, it's a spiritual upgrade. And this rising generation uh, carries a level of faith forward that we have not previously seen. What we can say about the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, though, is that this chapter brings us to the end of their story arc, uh, particularly with respect to their conversion to the gospel, of their gathering together within the land of Nephi, and ultimately their exile from that place, their journey into the wilderness, and their arrival into an entirely new place. For them, it will very much be a land of promise. And so from this perspective, we can see that the story of the people of Ammon is very much another theme on the variation of exile within the Book of Mormon. As we consider their story for a moment, I think it's worth considering that a secular view of Lamoni and his people, and his brother Anti-Nephi-Lehi and his people, and all of the other Lamanites that have gathered with them and have taken on this identity, a secular view of their story might suggest to us that they were doing fine prior to the entrance of these missionaries upon the scene. They were living their lives in the land of Nephi. We can tell that there was some chaos and some turbulence in Lamoni's life, especially as we learn about his relationship with his servants and what he did to them when they failed at the waters of Sebus. We can also see that his relationship wasn't perfectly ideal with his father, that there was some chaos there. But setting those issues aside and looking at their story more broadly and from a secular viewpoint, one might argue again that Their trouble really began once Ammon entered the land of Ishmael and once Aaron and his brethren entered the city or land of Jerusalem and they began to preach to these Lamanites. Because as we fast forward to the present point, uh, 14 years later, we can see that the net result for these anti-Nephi-Lehi's is that they've been persecuted by their countrymen. They've been kicked out of their homes and their cities and their lands within the land of Nephi. And they've had to come of all places into the land of their enemies and appeal to the generosity of a subset of these Nephites so that they might have a place to live in the land of Jershon. This doesn't sound entirely good for these people, and it's something that just a few years previously they never could have imagined. We can certainly guess that Lamoni expected to live out his days as king of the land of Ishmael, and that the people living under him with the notable and possible exception of Abish, had the same expectation. So from this rather unenlightened view of their plight and of their story, we can see that there are multiple ways of viewing the stories of our life as well. Some are secular and unenlightened, uh, as is my uh, description here of the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi. But the Lord teaches us to view our own stories in a way that's infused with a spirit of gratitude and that is enlightened by the Spirit of the Lord. Our mortal story also follows this same exile pattern where we too can be called to leave our lands, to gather with the people of the covenant and to travel figuratively into the wilderness. With this in mind, let's take just a moment and review the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's from this more enlightened perspective. This is a group of people who, when they did meet these missionaries, Ammon and Aaron, Omner, Himni, and their other missionary companions, who did have to encounter the necessary chaos of change, they did have to repent, and they did have to change their way of life. But this did not set them into a tailspin that ultimately landed them in a new place that they didn't want to be in. Instead, this change set them upon a straight and narrow path where they discovered the merits and mercies and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and his gospel, and they were able to make covenants with him. They showed their fidelity to the Savior and to these covenants in miraculous and marvelous ways. Most notably, of course, is the way in which they submitted themselves to their enemies, who they referred to as their brethren, in Alma chapter 24, when they uh, laid before them prostrate, uh, they had buried their swords and they allowed themselves to be slain, didn't turn to the right or to the left, they didn't retreat. This was a stunning development, and they certainly 
proved their level of conversion at this point. They also showed their fidelity to this covenant, however, in smaller, uh, more sedimentary and simple ways through the day-to-day observances that made up the law of Moses, and we're told about that in Alma chapter 25. This might make us think of the story of Naaman the leper, who was told by a servant of Elisha, or more accurately, a messenger of Elisha, to wash himself in the Jordan River seven times. Naaman had other ideas for how his leprosy would be cured, and his own servants, perceiving what was happening here, said to him, My father, if the prophet, meaning Elisha, had bid thee to do some great thing, wouldst thou not have done it? How much rather then, when he saith to thee, Wash and be clean? That story, of course, tells us that these daily acts, these smaller, sedimentary, more simple acts of continually washing and being clean, is is probably the most significant part of our conversion. Naaman's seven times might make us think of the seven days of the week, and how at the beginning of, of each of those days, on a Sunday, we have the opportunity to partake of the emblem, emblems of the Lord's suffering and uh, achieve a, a similar type of continual cleansing. But I bring that story up here to illustrate that these amazing people, these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, had most certainly done some great thing, uh, as illustrated in Alma chapter 24 when they buried their swords and submitted themselves to their enemies. But that the narrative is also very careful to show us in Alma chapter 25 that their conversion was totally complete because they did the other things as well in their observance of the law of Moses. As we continue to look at their story from a more enlightened perspective, we can see then that this had a certain effect on these people. It's probably best expressed by what Alma said to the people of Zarahemla in Alma chapter 5 when he said, Be ye separate, come ye out from the wicked, and touch not the unclean thing. This is what was happening to these anti-Nephi-Lehi's as part of their conversion process. They were becoming a covenant people. This naturally widened the gulf between them and their enemies. It made their relationship with the Amalekites and the Amulonites and the other Lamanites that were similarly hardened. It made it more and more untenable. It became no more realistic for these covenant people to live as an island nation, as anti-Nephi-Lehites, in and among the Lamanites uh, in the land of Nephi. And in in that I include, of course, the Amulonites and the Amalekites. But it it made it no more uh, realistic for them to live among those people as it did for Zenith and uh, ultimately Limhi to, to live among them. They found themselves in bondage. And so this group of covenant people, these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, because of their conversion, were put in a position where they were no longer welcome in their own nation. They, like the saints in this dispensation who left Nauvoo, had to leave the borders of their own nation and go into exile and be led by the Lord on a journey so that they could find a place where it was possible for them to gather in safety. This, of course, was all part of the Lord's plan. What we can see from the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi, and what we will see moving forward in the narrative, if we read from a perspective that is enlightened by the Spirit of the Lord, is that their temporal losses were far exceeded by their spiritual gains. This, I believe, is the outcome that we too can expect as we singularly become a new person or a new creature in our conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ, and as we collectively become a new people. An unenlightened perspective of our story may show temporal losses. Our walk on the straight and narrow covenant path does not necessarily insulate us from that. But what we can see for us or anyone else who has the courage to accept the gospel message as it is presented by the Lord's ordained messengers, is that the spiritual gains that come from this process will far outweigh any of the proximate chaos that comes into our lives as a result of this change and will add to our everlasting joy. 
Well, now to take a look at the structure of this chapter, Alma chapter 27, there are 30 verses. The first verse uh, shows us how the Lamanites retrench back into their own lands. So the previous chapter, of course, was Alma chapter 26, and this was uh, Ammon's words uh, when he gloried in the Lord, as the um, chapter summary says. And so uh, during that chapter, we've kind of had a break from the narrative. So as we read verse 1 here, we have to remember uh, the storytelling narrative that we were given in Alma chapter 25. And we, we can remember how it was that the attacking Lamanites, who mostly were composed of Amulonites and Amalekites, and then again, uh, the, the other Lamanites that were similarly hardened, we can remember that after they had attacked the anti-Nephi-Lehites, that they were unsuccessful in that venture, ultimately, and so then they turned their ire towards the Nephites, and in so doing, they destroyed the, the city and land of Ammonihah. So all of those things happened in Alma chapter 25. And so as we come to verse 1 here in chapter 27, uh, it, it's that narrative that's being put forward. And we find again that after this experience, the Lamanites simply retrench. They go back into the land of Nephi. At this point, however, the unrest does not end, and we can see that in verses 2 and 3, that the Amalekites in particular, because remember in Alma chapter 25, the Amulonites through all of this were pretty well expelled from the Lamanite kingdom, or at least those Amulonites that even remained. So now we're talking specifically about the Amalekites. And um, they then direct their focus, as we'll see here in verses 2 and 3, onto the destruction of the anti-Nephi-Lehites again. And, uh, and so then there's another sequence where they attack these good people and the anti-Nephi-Lehites once again refuse to take up their swords. And in fact, as we're told in verse 3, they suffered themselves to be slain according to the desires of their enemies. So this incident is not described in such vivid detail. It's kind of understated, but we can see that they actually did the same thing that they did in Alma chapter 24 again when they were being attacked by the Amalekites. It's at this point that Ammon and the sons of Mosiah, as it says in verse 4, Ammon and his brethren, their anguish was so great in seeing the destruction of this uh, wonderful converted group of people that they began to formulate a plan for their deliverance from the land of Nephi. And so Ammon meets with anti-Nephi-Lehi. Remember, this is Lamoni's presumably elder brother who has now taken the Lamanite throne. And he suggests that all of these converts, these anti-Nephi-Lehi's, actually relocate to the land of Zarahemla. So that conversation will take place in verses 4 through 13 we'll find that King Anti-Nephi-Lehi does agree to do so um, once the Lord does direct Ammon accordingly in this effort. And so we're told in verse 14 that these people did gather together, and the word gather is very significant here. Uh, All of these people of the Lord did gather together, and that includes their flocks and their herds, and they departed out of the land. They left the land of Nephi, So again, we can think of the faithful saints from this dispensation who left Nauvoo and actually in so doing left the borders, well, ultimately left the borders of the United States of America. These people gathered together, and we can see this in verse 14, and they came into the wilderness which divided the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla. Once they traversed that wilderness, they came close to the borders of the land of Zarahemla, and there they stopped. It's at this place that the people of Ammon waited for the sons of Mosiah to go into the city of Zarahemla and to discuss their fate with Nephiha, the chief judge. So we'll see that in just a moment. But first, in verses 16 through 19, we will have this retelling of the meeting between the sons of Mosiah and Alma the Younger on this road when Alma was traveling southward from Gideon down to Manti. This also shows us, of course, that the flashback that began in Alma chapter 17 is now complete. Interestingly, we'll discover in verse 20 that Alma takes the sons of Mosiah after this meeting to his house. This is the the third time we've seen Alma's house as a place of refuge, 
The first time was after his meeting with the people of Gideon in Alma chapter 7, where he spoke to them, and then it, it says that he went to his home and rested for a time. The second time that we read of that is when he brings Amulek to his home after their mission, and they, they convalesce, it seems, for a period of time. Now he's bringing the sons of Mosiah after their 14-year mission, again, to his house. This happens here in verse 20. And Alma's house is kind of an interesting meeting place for all these missionaries. So now the task, of course, is for the sons of Mosiah to speak with nephi and see if there's a way that they can accommodate these converted anti-Nephi-Lehi's in the land of Zarahemla. So Alma goes with them to nephi nephi is not named in this, but he is, of course, the chief judge is named, and we can guess that it is nephi So in verses 21 through 24, we'll find this exchange taking place. And nephi consults with the people themselves, and we discover that the people offer the land of Jershon to the anti-Nephi-Lehites. And in addition to offering up this land, they also offer their protection. They're moved by the conversion story of these people, and they, they understand their covenant not to take up the sword, and they agree to protect them from this time forward. They say in verse 23 that they may protect their brethren in the land Jershon, and this we do for our brethren on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren, lest they should commit sin. Then they continue, and this their great fear came, because of their sore repentance which they had had, on account of their many murders and their awful wickedness. This seems to reflect an understanding on the part of the Nephites that it was a part of the ongoing repentance process for these people, who they will come to call the people of Ammon, that even though their conversion is so demonstrably complete, they still have to insulate themselves from the trappings of their previous way of life. So this, of course, is wonderful news. And in verses 25 through 30, so bringing us to the end of this chapter, we'll find the sons of Helaman, Ammon, Aaron, Omner, Himni, and this time with Alma as well, returning to the borders of Zarahemla, finding the anti-Nephi-Lehites, and relating this news to them, that the land of Jershon has been made available to them, and that these Nephites will host them in a sense, and will protect them from this point forward. This is an incredible moment because uh, there's so much animosity between Nephites and Lamanites historically, going back through the centuries. But this is an example of converted saints, where uh, within that um, kind of church ecosystem, there are no ites of any kind, and all are alike unto God. And these Nephites are so happy to receive these Lamanites that they offer up this land and they offer their protection. And they, became, they become one. They're, they're unified in fellowship and brotherhood because of their conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ and their mutual membership in his church. So at this, it's at this point that we'll be told in this final uh, section of this chapter that these will be known as the people of Ammon. And they will be known from this point forward for their honesty and for their firmness of faith. The final verse, verse 30, will say they were a zealous and a beloved people, a a highly favored people of the Lord. So this is what we uh, can look forward to learning more deeply as we move through the the text. So here is verse 1. Now, it came to pass that when those Lamanites who had gone to war against the Nephites had found after their many struggles to destroy them, that it was in vain to seek their destruction, they returned again to the land of Nephi. So finally, these Lamanites that had wreaked so much havoc and who had suffered so many losses on their own, as we think back on Alma chapter 25 and how the Amulonites by this point have almost been made extinct, they finally decide simply to return to the land of Nephi. Uh, Unfortunately, like with Alma chapter 25, they're simply going to redirect their ire, however, and and, and keep pursuing trouble. So we learn this in verse 2. And it came to pass that the Amalekites, because of their loss, were exceedingly angry. And when they saw that they could not seek revenge from the Nephites, they began to stir up the people in anger against their brethren, the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. Therefore they began again to destroy them. 
We can see how this grievance narrative is perpetuated for these people. Even though they were the original aggressors in all of this, since many of them were defeated as the Nephites defended themselves against their attacks, they now have more and perhaps more legitimate reasons to be sore against the Nephites. This is the perpetual cycle of violence and hatred that can exist between two feuding nations. We can see truly from this story and from the scriptures more broadly that the only release valve from this is the forgiveness and compassion that comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. So, of course, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's have discovered this release valve, so to speak, through their conversion, and so they demonstrate their willingness to um, go the way of the Savior. In verse 3, it says, Now this people again refused to take their arms, and they suffered themselves to be slain according to the desires of their enemies. Before moving farther into this story, we have yet one more opportunity just to consider this unique name, Anti-Nephi-Lehi. We've already covered this previously and learned really that the word uh, anti uh, may not mean anti at all, but may mean something else, which would suggest that these converted people, by taking on this name, were aligning themselves with Nephi and Lehi instead of embracing the grievance narrative that had been perpetuated against Nephi and Lehi for all these centuries. The other way of interpreting the name, we learned, is by taking the word anti at face value and grouping it with the word Nephi and saying that these were the anti-Nephi Lehi's. If we say it that way, the anti-Nephi Lehi's, then it suggests that these are a group of people who are indeed descendants of Lehi, They're just not coming through the Nephite line. It's a way then of saying that there essentially are Lamanites, but they're disavowing that name and that way of life. And again, that same grievance narrative. So we can kind of interpret the name either way. Here are a couple pieces of commentary that kind of orient us to this before moving farther into the chapter. First of all, from Daniel Ludlow, from his companion to your study of the Book of Mormon. He says if Joseph Smith were simply writing a fictional story, why would he choose this name of anti-Nephi-Lehi? Dr. Hugh Nibley has found a Semitic and common Indo-European root corresponding to anti that means in the face of or facing, as of one facing a mirror, and by extension, either one who opposes or one who imitates. Thus, the term anti-Nephi-Lehi's might refer to those who imitate the teachings of the descendants of Nephi and Lehi. Uh, and now this from Jeffrey Bromley in his Theological Dictionary of the New Testament. He says, The anti-Nephi-Lehi's were not opposed to Nephi and Lehi. Rather, they took that name on behalf of or for the cause of Nephi and Lehi. Anciently, the Greek term anti meant something different from what it means today. Anti does not have the sense over against in the New Testament, but is used for a, uh, in place of to denote a replacement or equivalent, or similarity. From this, develop the senses, and B, on behalf of, or to the account of, and C, for the sake of, or for this cause, uh, because of. So again, that kind of rounds out our, our commentary on this, um, this very unique name. And both of those pieces of commentary uh, suggest that anti doesn't mean anti, the way that we take it on face value. Uh, and that indeed does seem to be true, uh, but there is another way of looking at it, of course, again, which uh, we actually would use the word anti at face value and simply say, these are the anti-Nephi-Lehi's. In any event, these people will become more widely known as we move on from this chapter as the people of Ammon. Now, verse 4, as we kind of move back into the text and consider the pathos of what's happening here, once again, these faithful people have demonstrated their willingness to show their fidelity to their covenant and specifically their covenant of burying their sword and keeping their repentance complete and not staining their swords. They do it again and submit themselves to the attacking Amalekites. So the pathos of this, the the great sadness uh, that we're experiencing as readers to see that they went through this experience yet again. And so that's how Ammon and his brethren are feeling as well. So verse 4, Now when Ammon and his brethren 
saw this work of destruction among those whom they so dearly beloved, and among those who had so dearly beloved them, for they were treated as though they were angels sent from God to save them from everlasting destruction. So this is how these converted Lamanites treated Ammon and these missionaries. They treated them as though they were angels sent from God. Therefore, when Ammon and his brethren saw this great work of destruction, they were moved with compassion. And they said unto the king, Let us gather this people of the Lord. Let us go down to the land of Zarahemla to our brethren the Nephites and flee out of the hands of our enemies that we be not destroyed. Before moving deeper into the story, I just want to pause and dwell on this idea for a moment, uh, that the way that um, Ammon and his brethren were regarded uh, by the anti-Nephi-Lehi's was as though they were angels. It's interesting when viewed that way to see Doctrine and Covenants section 42, verse 6. This is something that Thomas Arvaletta points out in his Book of Mormon Study Guide. That verse says, Go forth in the power of my spirit, preaching my gospel two by two in my name, lifting up your voices as with the sound of a trump, declaring my word like unto angels of God. This suggests to us that these converted Lamanites weren't wrong in regarding these missionaries as angels, and it wasn't hyperbolic to think of them and to refer to them as such. McConkie and Millet have said this, An angel is a messenger from the Lord. The Hebrew word malak, for instance, means messenger, representative, or angel. In the context of the Old Testament, it is used in reference to both human and spirit messengers. For that matter, those who come in the name of the Savior ought to be accorded the same respect that would be granted the Master. This was the spirit in which those in Galatia received the Apostle Paul. Of that reception he wrote, My temptation which was in my flesh ye despised not, nor rejected, but received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus. We most certainly see this manifested in today's dispensation as well, uh, when there is a certain respect and love that is uh, afforded and accorded to such young missionaries who come from their homes and enter the field of labor throughout the world and preach to the, the gospel to, to, to people throughout the world, and they're often regarded as, as angels. So now, returning to this story, once again, Ammon and his brethren really want to know what, uh, how, how to bring the anti-Nephi-Lehites out of the trouble that they're in in the land of Nephi. As I mentioned in the introduction, it's no longer any more tenable for these Lamanites to stay in their native land than it was for the people of Limhi to stay there. It, it just was no longer possible. So with that in mind, to reread verse 5, Ammon says, Let us gather together this people of the Lord. Let us go down to the land of Zarahemla to our brethren the Nephites and flee out of the hands of our enemies that we be not destroyed. Now this is what Ammon had sent, said to the king, to anti-Nephi-Lehi. But the king said unto them, Behold, the Nephites will destroy us because of the many murders and sins we have committed against them. So we can just imagine how audacious this idea is to the king to actually go into the land of Zarahemla. That seems unthinkable. But again... This is a, there, there is a group of converted Nephites that await them that are fully able to look beyond race and to look beyond the animosity between these two nations uh, for whom there are no ites of any kind. Verse 7, And Ammon said, I will go and inquire of the Lord. And if he say unto us, Go down unto our brethren, will ye go? So that's Ammon's approach. It's not to argue with the king or to cajole or to persuade to any great degree, but instead it's just to say, well, why don't I inquire of the Lord, and then let's let's decide accordingly with that. Verse 8, And the king said unto him, Yea, if the Lord saith unto us, we will go down unto our brethren, and we will be their slaves until we repair unto them the many murders and sins which we have committed against them. We might remember that Limhi and his people were in such a state of bondage that the prospect of returning to Zarahemla once Ammon, the first Ammon, came in their midst, was so great uh, that, that they were willing to be servants or slaves if they were able to make it back to Zarahemla. That's for kind of a different set of reasons, but it, it, it is similar. But here, this king is showing his willingness yet in another way, and I, I think it is perfectly sincere that he really um, they would have been willing to be the Nephite slaves uh, if that's what they needed to do. But Ammon said unto him in verse 9, "'It is against the law of our brethren.'" which was established by my father, 
that there should be any slaves among them. Therefore, let us go down and rely upon the mercies of our brethren. Well, we're reminded here, of course, that Mosiah is the lawgiver and that incredibly, Ammon is his son. This is the son of the lawgiver over all the land. Uh, Mosiah, by this point, has passed away, of course, and Nephi is ruling, and he's doing so as chief judge instead of as king. But this was part of the law that was put forth, was that slaves, uh, there would not be any slaves. So slavery was not espoused by the Nephites during this time under Mosiah's law. It was abhorrent to them. So uh, anti-Nephi-Lehi is no doubt relieved to hear this from Ammon, that that's just not something that the Nephites did, and that he did not need to expect to be their slaves as they went into the land of Zarahemla. John Welch has written, The law of Mosiah prohibited slavery in the land of Zarahemla, for Ammon assured his converts that it is against the law of our brethren, which was established by my father, that there should be any slaves among them. Previously, it had been only by royal benevolence that slavery was not allowed in Zarahemla. Now verse 10, But the king said unto him, Inquire of the Lord, and if he saith unto us, Go, we will go, otherwise we will perish in the land. Notice again the the king's fidelity to the covenant is coming through here because those are the only options that he will entertain. Uh, And they are to the point where perishing in the land, if they stay, seems like an inevitability. Verse 11, And it came to pass that Ammon went and inquired of the Lord, and the Lord said unto him, Get this people out of this land, that they perish not. For Satan has great hold on the hearts of the Amalekites, who do stir up the Lamanites to anger against their brethren to slay them, Therefore, get thee out of this land, and blessed are this people in this generation, for I will preserve them. I I really do think that the parallels to the pioneers, as we call them, in this dispensation are, are quite interesting here, because they truly came to a point while they were living in Nauvoo, where they really just did have to leave, and uh, that, that was their best option. And uh, that's what's happening here as well. Verse 13, And now it came to pass that Ammon went and told the king all the words which the Lord had said unto him. So in response to this, the king um, uh, says that he will go if the Lord has directed him to do so. And so in verse 14, And they gathered together all their people, yea, all the people of the Lord, and did gather together all their flocks and herds. Now, of course, this is the other way in which the anti-Nephi-Lehites are referred throughout this narrative as people of the Lord. And that helps to link them with those who are willing to be therefore separate, those covenant keepers that we see throughout Scripture who are often known as Israel, the people of the Lord. They did gather themselves together, all their flocks and herds, and departed out of the land, and came into the wilderness which divided the land of Nephi from the land of Zarahemla, and came over near the borders of the land. Verse 15, And it came to pass that Ammon said unto them, Behold, I and my brethren will go forth into the land of Zarahemla, and ye shall remain here until we return. And we will try the hearts of our brethren, whether they will that ye shall come into their land. So the Lord has told them to leave. Get this people out of this land, is the way that he said it in verse 12. And then later in the verse, he says, I will preserve them. However, in that verse, the Lord does not say explicitly how he will do so. He just tells them to get out of the land. This, I think, is instructive for us and also does, again, make us think of the early pioneers who left Nauvoo and who were, were going to the west, far, far away into the west, a place which God had prepared. But they weren't exactly sure where they were going and um, what those circumstances would be. And that seems similar here because these people of the Lord uh, did, according to the Lord's instructions, flee from the land of Nephi Now they find themselves in the wilderness and they're following through with a plan to try the hearts of the Nephites and see if somehow they could be received. Now, before moving into that, here are a couple pieces of commentary. First from Ogden and Skinner. The unwavering commitment of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's to nonviolence evoked the empathy of Ammon, who helped relocate them. Verse 4 contains a poignant description of the relationship between missionaries and their converts, those whom they so dearly beloved and those who had so dearly beloved them, for they were treated as though they were angels sent from God to save them. Now this from Spencer J. Condy. 
The conversion of the warmongering Lamanites who became the anti-Nephi-Lehites was remarkable. But just as remarkable was the instant forgiveness of the Nephites, who apparently had friends and relatives who had been killed by the anti-Nephi-Lehites prior to their conversion. Conversion involves a mighty change of heart, a process experienced by both anti-Nephi-Lehites and Nephites alike. And here Elder Connie's making a, a really wonderful point that this chapter is not just the story of the anti-Nephi-Lehites, but it's also the story of the Nephites who are willing to receive them into their land and to offer protection. So more broadly speaking, it is the story of the people of the Lord, how they're willing to come together and, and to gather, and how they regard one another. They regard each other as angels, and they treat each other with this incredible Christ-like compassion looking beyond any differences of race or nationality. And, of course, overcoming the animosity that would normally exist between these two groups of people. Again, it seems to be the great release valve of forgiveness that uh, can break this cycle between two nations. And that is a type of forgiveness that is probably beyond the reach of normal mortals to achieve. It uh, truly requires the grace and power of Jesus Christ to enter into our lives, to even be capable of forgiving to such an extent. So at this point in the chapter, we would expect to um, immediately move into uh, a conversation where the hearts of the Nephites are tried, and we'll see how uh, willing they are to accept the people of Ammon who are just waiting outside the borders of the land of Zarahemla. But first, this will happen in verses 16 through 19, and we'll come back to this retelling of the meeting along the road. Uh, as Alma is traveling south to the land of Manti. So verse 16, And it came to pass that as Ammon was going forth into the land, that he and his brethren met Alma over in the place of which has been spoken. Meaning, that was in Alma chapter 17. We knew that Alma was coming from the south. And behold, this was or coming from the north. This was a joyful meeting. Now the joy of Ammon was so great, even that he was full, Yea, he was swallowed up in the joy of his God, even to the exhausting of his strength, and he fell again to the earth. So we didn't learn that in the Alma 17 account of the meeting between these brethren. It had been 14 years. They had great love for each other. And of course, as it said then, what added more to their joy was that they were still his brethren in the Lord, as we read that from the perspective of Alma. But we didn't read that their joy was so great that, uh, at least in Ammon's case, he fell to the earth. And when it says he fell again, that's because now we have read this flashback and we know what happened to Ammon when he converted. Uh, That's not the best verbiage to use, but when he uh, facilitated the conversion of Lamoni, uh, that he fell to the earth. So that's why it says again. Verse 18, Now was not this exceeding joy? Behold, This is joy which none receiveth, save it be the truly penitent and humble seeker of happiness. So this is well worth pausing and considering and pondering upon. This truly is one of the most joyful reunions in all of Scripture. We talked about that a little bit in Alma chapter 17, and it's great that we can come back and view this again, this same event, as we come to the end of this flashback, and again consider this tremendous joy. Ogden and Skinner have written, These verses contain a scene of extraordinary joy at the missionary reunion of Ammon, his brothers, and their close friend Alma. This same Ammon, who was so joyful as he gloried in his God, was now so overcome with joy that his physical strength gave out and he fell to the earth. We could have been told of this incident, of the way in which Ammon fell uh, in Alma chapter 17, but that would have been very premature. But now we have such a sense for who he is because of of his story and the way that it played out uh, that we read in earlier chapters. And of course, then, as we read in just the previous chapter, the way that Ammon spoke, his beautiful, poetic, and grateful uh, manner of speaking was showcased in Alma chapter 26. Elder Tad R. Callister has written this in his um, seminal book, The Infinite Atonement. The Lord gave the answer, the only sure answer, My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. That peace of which he spoke is the peace that passeth all understanding. That's a phrase out of Philippians chapter 4, verse 7. 
It is to be found only as we come to know, appreciate, and accept the atonement of Jesus Christ. Then peace shall be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Ammon was a living witness of that. He spoke of the hopelessness of those who tried another way. Uh, Behold, this is my joy which none receiveth, save it be the truly penitent and humble seeker of happiness. David knew the futility of seeking another source of peace. Lord, what wait I for? My hope is in thee. That's in Psalm 39, verse 7. Now we get this interesting clarification in verse 19. Now the joy of Alma in meeting his brethren was truly great, and also the joy of Aaron and of Omner and Himni. But behold, their joy was not that to exceed their strength. So interestingly and insightfully, Ammon is the only one among them who fell to the earth in this manner. We don't know how long this episode lasted. The text doesn't tell us, but verse 20 will tell us that Alma took his brethren then to his house. And once again, we we spoke of Alma's house, and maybe they had to carry Ammon there while he was unconscious. It's hard to say. Maybe he was still in that um, semi-comatose state, as Camille Franck put it. And so maybe they maybe they carried him to Alma's house and, and they had to convalesce there and wait until he returned among them. Uh, in any event, here's what verse 20 says. And now it came to pass that Alma conducted his brethren back to the land of Zarahemla, even to his own house. And they went and told the chief judge all the things that had happened unto them in the land of Nephi among their brethren, the Lamanites. So we wonder about some of these details and they're all condensed, of course. But after a period of convalescing in Alma's house, and of course, after at some point here, Ammon comes to again. They go to Nephiha, and he's not named, but it certainly is Nephiha. Uh, Alma, of course, has a relationship with him, and undoubtedly the sons of Mosiah do as well, even though it has been 14 years since they've last been in Zarahemla. But we can imagine them then uh, going to Alma's house, recovering, and then going in to the court of the chief judge. This was the man who took rule Uh, lawfully and rightfully, according to his wishes, but took rule from King Mosiah. And it would have been any one of these sons who would have superseded his own rule or role as chief judge in the land. But uh, here they finally are coming back together again. So there's an interesting dynamic between them and Nephiha. So verse 21, after uh, this undoubtedly joyful reunion with Nephiha and a retelling of their mission. Uh, now Nephiha appeals to the people. So verse 21, And it came to pass that the chief judge sent a proclamation throughout all the land, desiring the voice of the people concerning the admitting their brethren, who were the people of anti-Nephi-Lehi. And it came to pass that the voice of the people came, saying, so quite interesting that he appealed to the people in this way, and this reflects a new form of government. Behold, we will give up the land of Jershon, which is on the east by the sea, which joins the land bountiful, which is on the south of the land bountiful. And this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. So that's a new proper noun for us. That's a new place that we have not heard of before. Uh, I believe bountiful was introduced to us briefly as we read Mormon's geographical digression at the end of Alma chapter 22. So Jershon, Stephen Ricks and John Tavetnus have written, The name, though not found in the Bible, has an authentic Hebrew origin, the root meaning to inherit. It is in this light that we should understand the words of Alma chapter 27 verse 22, and this land, Jershon, is the land which we will give unto our brethren for an inheritance. Verse 23, the, this is the collective voice of the people as it comes back to nephi They say they will give these people the land of Jershon, and behold, we will set our armies between the land of Jershon and the land Nephi, that we may protect our brethren in the land Jershon. And this we do for our brethren on account of their fear to take up arms against their brethren, lest they should commit sin. And this their great fear came because of their sore repentance which they had, on account of their many murders and their awful wickedness. Uh, So this is really something quite incredible because these Nephites would have had an understanding of what this meant. Uh, They knew that the Amalekites, who had so recently been in the land of Zarahemla and who had attacked the Nephites, that they would most certainly be inclined 
to come into the land of Jershon and to attack the people of Ammon. So these Nephites are not simply offering a security detail. Uh, they are fully willing to defend uh, these people in the land of Jershon, who are their sworn enemies. They are the, they're Lamanites. They're willing to defend them uh, with their own lives. That's, that's the type of fellowship with the saints, uh, as Paul put it, that we're seeing here. We've seen the phrase sore repentance before uh, in their, as, as these Nephites show this understanding that they have with the anti-Nephi-Lehites, and they say because of the sore repentance they had. So they understand that that's why they're not going to take up their swords again. I think Alma the Elder used that phrase, actually. Uh, President Russell M. Nelson said, what does it mean to repent? We begin with the dictionary's definition that to repent is to turn from sin, to feel sorrow and regret. To repent from sin is not easy, but the prize is worth the price. Uh, Now this from uh, Elder Boyd K. Packer. When the prophet Alma was young, he spent such a time racked, as he said, with eternal torment, his soul harrowed up to the greatest degree. He even thought, oh, that I could be banished and become extinct, both soul and body. But his mind caught hold of a thought. Then he nurtured the thought and acted upon it. The morning of forgiveness came, and he said, I could remember my pains no more. Yea, I was harrowed up by the memory of my sins no more. And oh, what joy, and what marvelous light I did behold. Yea, my soul was filled with joy as exceeding as was my pain. Letters come from those who have made tragic mistakes, and they ask, Can I ever be forgiven? The answer is yes. The gospel teaches us that relief from torment and guilt can be earned through repentance. Save for those few who defect to perdition after having known a fullness, there is no habit, no addiction, no rebellion, no transgression, no offense exempted from the promise of complete forgiveness. Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. That, by the way, is a beautiful example of Hebrew parallelism. That is, Isaiah continued, if ye be willing and obedient. Even that grace of God promised in the scriptures comes only after all we can do. Alma bluntly told his wayward son that repentance could not come unto men except there were a punishment. The punishment may for the most part consist of the torment we inflict upon ourselves. It may be the loss of privilege or progress. We are punished by our sins, if not for them. Again, uh, the anti-Nephi-Lehites, these converted Lamanites, they, their repentance was sore, and they decided to hide their swords in the earth, symbolically insulating them from the trappings of their previous addiction. These Nephites, uh, these Nephite saints seem to understand this so well that they are willing to defend their fellow saints with their lives. Verse 24, And now behold, this will we do unto our brethren, that they may inherit the land Jershon, and we will guard them from their enemies with our armies, on condition that they will give us a portion of their substance to assist us that we may maintain our armies. So there's some some real forgiveness that's happening here, uh, some real fellowship. It's uh, quite remarkable. This is from the um, Book of Mormon Institute manual. Alma had previously called upon the inhabitants of Zarahemla to change their hearts. He also declared that the Lord sendeth an invitation unto all men. This matches a similar invitation by the Lord through Nephi that God denieth none that come unto him, black and white, bond and free, male and female, all are alike unto God. The inhabitants of Zarahemla embraced Alma's message, and when it became necessary to forgive their enemies, they offered land and protection to the people of Ammon. President Howard W. Hunter admonished each of us to similarly forgive our enemies. Consider, for example, this instruction from Christ to his disciples. He said, Love your enemies, bless them that curse you, Do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Think what this admonition alone would do in your neighborhood and mine, in the communities in which you and your children live, in the nations which make up our great global family. I realize this doctrine poses a significant challenge, but surely it is a more agreeable challenge than the terrible tasks posed for us by the war and poverty and pain the world continues to face. We all have significant opportunity to practice Christianity, and we should try it at every opportunity. For example, we can be a little more forgiving. Now verse 25, and kind of the final section of this chapter. Uh, This is amazing news, 
and now the sons of Mosiah uh, will go back just outside the borders of the land of Zarahemla. This time they'll have Alma with them, and they will relate, relate this great news to Anti-Nephi-Lehi and his people, and they will come to inhabit Jershon and become known as the people of Ammon. So verse 25, Now it came to pass that when Ammon had heard this, he returned to the people of Anti-Nephi-Lehi, and also Alma with him into the wilderness, where they had pitched their tents, and made known unto them all these things. And Alma also related unto them his conversion with Ammon and Aaron and his brethren. So that's an interesting inclusion. Uh, we can see that there is this meeting that's taking place, and and Anti-Nephi-Lehi, and undoubtedly Lamoni was with him as well, although he's not mentioned. They are meeting Alma for the first time, and Alma is telling them about his conversion, and uh, specifically his conversion with Ammon and Aaron and his brethren. So he's talking about that thing that we read about in Mosiah chapter 27, when the angel came to them and they, they became converted unto the Lord. So all of these great brethren have this conversion in common. Verse 26, And it came to pass that it did cause great joy among them. And they went down into the land of Jershon and took possession of the land of Jershon. And they were called by the Nephites the people of Ammon. Therefore they were distinguished by that name ever after. And they were among the people of Nephi and also numbered among the people who were of the church of God. So this is um, all all so amazing here. We can see how it is that Lamoni and Anti-Nephi-Lehi, his brother, and all the people that are with them can see that they really are one with Alma and his brethren. They all have conversion to the gospel of Jesus Christ in common. They all have a willingness to repent in common. And now they have their membership of the church in common. And uh, as we're being told here, they were among the people of Nephi from this point forward, and they were among the people who were of the church of God. Then it says, And they were also distinguished for their zeal towards God, and also towards men, for they were perfectly honest and upright in all things, and they were firm in the faith of Christ even unto the end. So these converted people have gathered, they have moved into the land of Jershon, and they've become part of the church that has already been established in the land of Zarahemla. Ogden and Skinner said, What is said of the people of Ammon is what can be said of all true converts. They were known for their zeal, and they were perfectly honest, firm in the faith of Christ even unto the end. That is, they were solidly committed to the cause of Christ. There was no problem of inactivity among them. Richard C. Edgeley has written, Honesty is the basis of a true Christian life. For Latter-day Saints, honesty is an important requirement for entering the Lord's holy temple. Honesty is embedded in the covenants that we make in the temple. Each Sunday as we partake of the holy emblems of the Savior's flesh and blood, we again renew our basic and sacred covenants, which encompass honesty. As Latter-day Saints, we have a sacred obligation to not only teach the principles of honesty, but also to live them. Honesty should be among the most fundamental values that govern our everyday living. So it's quite interesting that honesty is is one of the virtues that is used to describe these converted Lamanites as they come into the land of Jershon and inhabit it, and as it talks about their way of life. We can think about honesty as as kind of a moment-to-moment decision that we make when we decide how to describe the truth that lies before us, whether we will be truthful or not. I think in the case of the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, it also reflects a tendency on their part to honestly assess the, the, real, the reality that besets them. Ogden and Skinner, a few chapters back in some commentary, uh, referred to their addiction to bloodlust. And uh, these were a people who did have such an addiction. And um, they have to be honest that they still, uh, in the manner of a true addiction, still have neuropathways that have been established that give them an increased proclivity towards or a propensity for bloodlust for the remainder of their days. They have to be honest about this, and they have to keep themselves away from the prospect of shedding blood once again. They don't want to revert back to that or return back to that. So we learn a great deal about honesty and addiction, I think, as we consider these great people. Neil A. Maxwell has written, Total Morality must concern itself both with man's relationships with God and with his fellow men. In Alma 27, verse 27, we read of church members with another age, or church members of another age, 
who were also distinguished for their zeal towards God and also towards men, for they were perfectly honest and upright in all things. These members looked upon the shedding of blood with the greatest abhorrence, but they did not look upon death with any degree of terror because of their views of Christ and the resurrection. The gentleness and integrity that are born of the perspective of the gospel are truly impressive when one sees them in others. In this fragment of history, we see an impressive statement about an entire group who bore up under persecution in a time of tribulation without losing their love of God and man. Now Mormon continues to describe these people of Ammon. Verse 28, And they did look upon shedding the blood of their brethren with the greatest abhorrence. Again, remember what their predilections are and remember where they've been. Remember what they've repented from and remember how they've buried their swords. And they never could be prevailed upon to take up arms against their brethren. And they never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Therefore, death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. Ogden and Skinner have written, This verse contains perceptive comments on death as viewed by those who are perfectly honest and upright in all things and firm in the faith of Christ. They never did look upon death with any degree of terror for their hope and views of Christ and the resurrection. Death was swallowed up to them by the victory of Christ over it. The concept of swallowed up appears rather frequently throughout the scriptures. For example, swallowed up in sorrow, that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. Swallowed up in pride, uh, which we'll read of about the Zoramites in Alma chapter 31, verse 27. And swallowed up in joy. The phrase means overwhelmed or overcome. In this case, the fear of death is totally overcome because of Christ's triumph over it. Death is swallowed up in victory. The sting of death is swallowed up in Christ. The sting of death should be swallowed up in the hopes of glory. Verse 29, Therefore they would suffer death in the most aggravating and distressing manner which could be inflicted by their brethren before they would take the sword or scimitar to smite them. And thus they were a zealous and beloved people, a highly favored people of the Lord. So kind of coming back to the introduction to this chapter, and that was the final verse, we can see that this is a group of people that were willing to embrace the chaos of change, the change that came to them because of the preaching of Ammon and Aaron and their brethren. And, and they were willing to face repentance. They were willing to pay this price so that they might come unto Christ and yoke themselves to him by covenant. They showed their fidelity to this covenant over and over, both in large ways by submitting to the swords of their enemies and in the small, steady, sedimentary ways of keeping the law of Moses from day to day. So all of this paints a picture of a group of people who were highly favored of the Lord and who, in this verse, it shows that they are willing to leave the lands of their inheritance and actually come to a new place. So there's much to ponder with all of that. And to this phrase, highly favored people of the Lord, Ogden and Skinner have written, Does God favor some people? The people of Ammon were a highly favored people of the Lord, as were others. And, and there they describe Alma chapter 13, or cite Alma chapter 13 and Alma 48 verse 20, where that phrase is used as well. Some having been favored above every other nation, kindred, tongue, or people. Nephi said that he was highly favored of the Lord in all his days. He was favored of the Lord because he was faithful in keeping the commandments of the Lord. The brother of Jared was also a man highly favored of the Lord. The Lord explains in simplicity how his kind of favoritism works. Quote, he that is righteous is favored of God. Unquote. That's 1 Nephi chapter 17, verse 35. God's favors are blessings, and there is a law irrevocably decreed in heaven upon which all blessings are predicated. And when we obtain any blessing from God, it is by obedience to that law upon which it is predicated. Well, now the, um, the story arc of the people of Ammon, the anti-Nephi-Lehi's, is kind of complete as we come to the end of this chapter. The story of the mission of the sons of Mosiah is also complete as we come to the end of this chapter. In Alma chapter 28, Mormon will provide us with a, a kind of a more broad retrospective, and especially on the year, uh, as, as the year of the 15th year of the reign of Judges comes to a close. So we have that to look forward to. And then in Alma chapter 9, 
um, we'll get kind of Alma's retrospective that's somewhat similar to the way in which we're able to get Ammon's retrospective in Alma chapter 26 as he gloried in the Lord and considered all that had happened up to that point during his mission. So Alma will do something kind of similar, talking about how he wishes that he could be as an angel, or perhaps literally be an angel, so we have that to look forward to as well. But for now, of course, this brings us to the end of this wonderful chapter and of this section in the Book of Mormon, Alma chapter 27. Thank you for listening to Come Follow Me, Deep Dive. I want to acknowledge the resources that have helped me prepare this and previous episodes of this podcast. Grant Hardy's Reader's Edition of the Book of Mormon has helped me with the sectional divisions in these chapters. Kelly Ogden and Andrew Skinner's verse-by-verse commentary on the Book of Mormon has provided me with rich commentary. I also want to acknowledge a new resource that I've used for the last few chapters, which is the Book of Mormon Study Guide, the revised edition from Thomas R. Valletta. Parallel passages of Scripture and general conference addresses that come to mind also play a prominent role in this podcast, as do my own thoughts and writings. For them and any errors that you find in them, I, of course, am solely responsible. I hope that this podcast has had the effect of drawing you to the scriptural text that is so rich with detail and generous with truths that can help us navigate through our own lives and, most importantly, draw closer to God in our study of His Word. So thank you for listening.